Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we're joined by Jonathan White, author of the new book, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. Jonathan White is Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University, where he teaches courses on the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Abraham Lincoln, and the history of treason in America. He is author of several books and almost 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War. His earlier book, a winner and finalist for a number of book prizes, was Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. Now, he has written a book about a subject I would wager that few, if anyone, had known very much about, and that in itself is a feat for Civil War history. Midnight in America is organized as a survey of dreams including those of soldiers, civilians, African-Americans, the dying, and Abraham Lincoln himself. The book also includes a chapter on dreams in popular culture. Now, the dreams reported in the book are not simply ideological, nationalistic dreams, but truly strange dreams with all the wacky juxtapositions we expect in our own dreaming. And many of these dreams are quite specific and materialistic and hardly nebulous, if, if they're recalled, that is. Indeed, what White's book shows overall is that it is the dreams during the Civil War, and not any more the waking sober analyses and impressions, that reveal the life of the country, its fears, desires, and struggles most clearly. Jonathan White, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So dreams are ever-present in our own lives, and obviously in the lives of people who have lived before, yet historians and many other academics have not really taken them as sources for historical analysis. Why not? And what led you to work on this project? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd like to think that the idea for the project came to me in a dream. I know it didn't. Um, (laughs) There are a few historians who have worked in other time periods who have looked at dreams, actually. A number of historians of the American Revolution have looked at the dreams of participants of that era in American history. And one of my favorite books is Founding Brothers by Joseph Ellis. And it won the Pulitzer Prize about 17 or 18 years ago. And in that book, Ellis describes the relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson And these guys had been very close friends during the American Revolution. And then by the 1790s, they were bitter political enemies. And in the early 19th century, they began to reconcile their relationship. And one of the ways that they did it was through correspondence that was mediated by a a mutual friend named Benjamin Rush. And Rush had the thought, why don't I have them write to each other about their dreams? And I remember reading that about 10 years ago, thinking wow, wouldn't it be so interesting to write a history of the Civil War through the lens of the dreams of the men and women who experienced it? 
And initially, I wondered if I'd be able to write a sort of narrative history tracing 1861 to 1865, I very quickly realized that would be too difficult to do. And so then I sort of just began collecting dreams over the last few years. And as I found them, my patterns began to emerge. And so those patterns then sort of shaped the book into the chapters that that are in the book. And you do have a note on methods at the end uh, because dreams are a slippery source of evidence. Yeah. So in in deciding to finally tackle this this question of dreams, um, what kind of parameters did you set in assessing uh, people's dreams as they were recorded? For the most part, I wanted to find dreams that were written down as close to the actual dream itself as possible. So with two exceptions in the book, I generally uh, avoided memoirs and reminiscences of regimental histories. I wanted to find what people wrote down the next morning, maybe in a letter to their spouse or in a diary. A few of the soldiers I looked at kept dream journals, and those were really incredible sources And the reason is, of course, if you think about it, most people don't remember hardly any of their dreams. I can't even remember what I dreamt last night at this point. I know I remembered when I woke up, but now I've forgotten. And so I figured if if you're finding accounts from much later, they're going to be far less reliable. So most of the dreams, I have about 400 in the book, and most of them came from letters or diaries. The exceptions... I I said there were two. I guess maybe there's three. The exceptions that I I made to that rule were in dreams of African-Americans, dreams of soldiers who claimed that they were going to be killed on the battlefield and then were. And then the third would be Abraham Lincoln's dreams. I wanted to have a chapter on slaves and on black soldiers and black civilians. And the reality is literacy rates from that time period make it very difficult to find contemporaneous accounts or dream reports. And so I had to rely on slave narratives for the chapter on African-Americans dreams. And so, and I also in that chapter had to look at broader than just the four years of the war. Um, But again, I was looking for patterns and I didn't want just simply uh, an ex-slave saying I dreamt of freedom or I had a dream of freedom. I wanted to find them actually giving accounts of real dreams that they had or that they claimed to have had. Right. And on that chapter that focuses on the dreams of African-Americans, both enslaved and free, uh, you draw distinctions between the places of dreams in African-American culture uh, at the time uh, versus white culture. uh, Right. And we can we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, So you begin the book, um, though, before you you sort of thematic or sorry, divide the chapters based on who the dreamer is. But you begin the book with a chapter uh, not on dreaming, but on the conditions of sleep or lack of sleep for soldiers. And I thought this was fascinating because um, it was obviously the entryway into dreaming is is falling asleep. But but you you, you force us to think about uh, how crucial the material conditions of sleep are, uh, not only for understanding, but but having dreams. Right. So can you talk a little bit about, about setting the stage in terms of the need to understand uh, the conditions for sleep and how that relates to dreaming? Sure. You know, it's interesting when, when scholars read letters of civil war soldiers, we often skip over 
the the parts where they say good night or they have little chit chat sort of things that just aren't interesting to most scholars. You know, we want to see the juicy stuff. We want to see what do they say about politics or what do they right, say right. about the battle. And I began to notice, though, as I was reading letters, the the ubiquity of the phrase good night. And I think that for soldiers who are far away from their loved ones, they viewed bedtime as an opportunity to really connect with people who were back at home. And so they treat their letters as as if they're a stand-in for the normal bedtime conversations they would have had with their wives when they were going to sleep at home. And so uh, it's interesting. They see that as a shared experience. And so they're they describe the way they go to sleep. They describe where they're sleeping because that's something that they know that their loved ones will understand. And they also see that as an opportunity to know, you know, as far apart as we are, we're looking up at the same stars. We're looking up at the same moon. We're going to sleep at the same time. And that gives them a very real sense of connection. Um, some soldiers even would try to re- to retain bedtime routines. I, I found some soldiers who would write to their spouses and say, I'm going to begin reading the Bible on January 1st, and I'm going to read two chapters a night. So if you want to know where I am, mm-hmm. you'll be able to figure it out and, and we can read along together. So the first part of my answer, I suppose, would be that bedtime is a chance to commune with those at home. It's, a, it's an opportunity to connect. But the other part is that bedtime and and night was also a very restless time period for for soldiers, whether they're on guard duty or picket duty or there's noises in camp or animals who are getting into their tents. There's all sorts of things that disturb a soldier's sleep. And modern sleep science shows us that if, if human beings are sleep deprived, it can actually take days to recoup one lost night's sleep. And when you're sleep deprived, your dreams tend to be much more vivid. And when you fall asleep, you tend to fall into the REM stage where you're dreaming a vivid dream. And I think that helps explain why soldiers had such vivid dreams throughout the the Civil War. In that first chapter, I try to show that sleeplessness was common. It, It was everywhere, whether you were in California or New Mexico or Virginia, as a soldier, you were going to be sleep deprived. And as a result, you're going to have more vivid dreams. And the vividness of the dreams is going to cause you to then want to report some of them and write them down or share them with comrades. Yeah, that was so interesting to me that, um, and it's so obvious when you state it, but that not getting enough sleep means that you fall more quickly into sleep. And then you actually fall more immediately into the stage of uh, REM sleep. REM mm-hmm. sleep, where you have the most vivid dreams. Um, and, and this also connects to something you talk about throughout the book, and we'll come back to as well, which is that, you know, when does, when does the day end and the dream begin? Right. Uh, right. And, and is, especially when you don't have enough sleep, um, how much is your, is your brain active in a dreamscape, uh, uh, even, you know, during the quote unquote day or when you're quote unquote awake. Um, but Soldiers are falling asleep a lot because they're not getting enough sleep, by which I mean they're falling asleep anywhere, even when they, they take a pause right. on, on Even the in battles. Even in battles, right. Even during a battle, uh, they're falling asleep. Um, so 
sleeping on duty was a capital crime uh, in the army, falling asleep mm -hmm. when you're on picket duty and such. Um, and you, you in that first chapter also talk about how Lincoln um, commuted all the death sentences of those who fell asleep on picket duty. Uh, and yeah. I'm wondering in, in making those decisions, you know, a lot of the officers or at least some of the officers suggested that, that, well, maybe we should execute some of these guys because it's going to set an example then. Right. But, but Lincoln decides not to um, uh, execute those who have fallen asleep on, on picket duty and such. Uh, so in making those decisions, what, what did Lincoln recognize that others didn't about these men or about conditions of sleep? Yeah. You know, that was, it was a really difficult situation for military officers because if pickets are falling asleep, then the other soldiers can't sleep soundly because they don't know that they're going to be safe and secure. And so a lot of the Union and Confederate high command, when they saw guys fall asleep, they wanted to have them executed to be made an example so that other men will realize this is not what I want to do and I'm not going to fall asleep on my post. But Lincoln commuted each and every one of those who was sentenced to be executed. And I think a big part of it was that Lincoln understood the pressures that were on these men. I think he also wanted to avoid what he might see as unnecessary bloodshed. And so there are hundreds of cases that Lincoln commuted because in his mind, there was so much bloodshed going on. He didn't want to add to it. Um, the, the most famous sleeping sentinel was a guy named William Scott, who was from Vermont, and he fell asleep outside of Washington, D.C. at the very beginning of the war. And there's a lot of mythology that surrounds his case. But suffice it to say, he was sentenced to be executed. And pretty close to the last minute, his his sentence was um, commuted. And Scott went on to fight and serve. And he actually was killed in battle with the Confederates about five or six miles away from where I am right here, right here in Newport News, Virginia. Hmm. And allegedly when he died, he said something along the lines of that he had, you know, was grateful to Lincoln for having spared his life. And he was glad that he could have served his country. In the aftermath of his death, his story was told throughout the country and it was told in the north and it was told to soldiers in the field. It became a, a poem that was recited at the White House and at the U.S. Capitol and in theaters throughout the country. It became a morality tale where this man who had sinned, who had fallen asleep at the beginning of the war, learned and, and became a better man and then ended up sacrificing his life for his country. And I think Union authorities were able to use that to try to motivate soldiers who might be prone to fall asleep to be like William Scott and, and be a, a good soldier in the end. Right. So there is a little bit of uh, romanticization, sentimentality in the popular representation of that story um yeah that, very much so that, that yeah surely creates a a feeling uh among among the other men that i would say also that that although you should be careful don't fall asleep there's that but then there's also uh there are people who care for you you know that the officers are, are humans mm -hmm. lincoln is a human and and as i'm hearing you tell tell that story again um, I'm thinking about how much attention it draws to the vulnerability of the male body. Um, yes. You know, obviously falling asleep, you know, no matter, no matter, even during a battle um, shows that, 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 that men have 
have needs, have bodily needs, uh, that care needs to be taken of their body. Um, and then hearing about Lincoln and sort of acknowledging that, that, you know, these guys need to sleep, um, a kind of recognition of the, of the vulnerability, um, of the body. Uh, and, and I'm now also thinking back about what you said in terms of the, the, you know, the signs off of the, the signing off of the letters, good night, sweet dreams, you know, um, this kind of like pillow talk, uh, at the end of right. letters. Um, so I want to turn then to, in regards to that, to the, to the content of these dreams a little bit more. Um, and, uh, you talk a lot about how that most of these dreams, as the soldiers reported them, um, were about uh, home life or loved ones more than the war itself or whatever was more immediately at hand for them in the army. Um, so what did it mean that that soldiers were dreaming more of home rather than the war itself, even though they were they were, you know, at war and you would think, oh, they're probably dreaming of war all the time. Right. Yeah. You would think that most of their dreams would be about combat or, or fatigue duty or things that are happening in the field. But regularly they write about dreams of home or they write about that dreams of home are common among the soldiers. And I think for them, dreams of home became a very real way to visit with loved ones. They became a way for soldiers to feel like they were with the people they loved the most. And they would often wake up upset thinking that they had just been with their wives or their parents or their children. And then they would wake up on the cold, hard earth next to another guy who probably smells really bad and is snoring or something. And, and they would be really angry that their dreams had only been a dream. But for soldiers, I think that when they had these dreams, they were reminded of their humanity. They were reminded of their cause, what they were fighting for. If you dream about your family and then you wake up the next day and you have to do drill or go into battle, you're going to be reminded of why it is you've gone to fight, that you've done it or you're doing it for a cause that's bigger than yourself. You're doing it for them. If you're a Southerner, you're doing it to protect your home from a Yankee invader um, and so these dreams of home could often really encourage soldiers, even when they were going through difficult times, because in, on the one hand, they feel like they're really seeing their loved ones. And on the other hand, they're being encouraged to remember um, what it is that they're doing out there, why they're fighting. Right. Uh, yeah, that to me was one of the more illuminating themes of the book was that um, that these dreams of home were a way of tending to the sort of felt disconnections between the soldier and his loved ones back home. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he hadn't received a letter from them lately, or maybe he imagined thus being forgotten, no longer important, even replaced. Uh, and we learn in, in some of these dreams that uh, some of the soldiers interpreted that or, or feared that uh, their, their loved ones were unfaithful to them with others right. back home. Uh, meanwhile, around them, as we've said, soldiers were experiencing discomfort, death and destruction of war. And so it's really interesting to think about the uh, the connections between those two, that that the the dreaming about the fear of disconnection from home and thus uh, the need for affection um, is a way into understanding how they're experiencing the quote unquote political issues of the war itself in terms of the, the discomfort, death, or destruction that may come at them um, in the moment of fighting. Uh, right. 
And uh, so I, I'm just wondering, I just want to push more on that, which is um, how much do these dreams about home, the felt disconnections uh, reveal about how these soldiers thought uh, about the war itself? You mentioned, um, you know, that they were, they, they could think that they were fighting for their families, keeping their families together. Um, how much did you see that, that even their, their understanding of the war and their waking life uh, might be informed emotionally by, by their familial and interpersonal dynamics back home? Yeah, you certainly see it. And especially, I think, with Confederate soldiers, as they're beginning to see a social revolution take place with emancipation in the South, I found one Arkansas soldier who dreamt that he was at home with his Aunt Polly at a dinner. And he is at this dinner, and the details of the dream are escaping me exactly, but he's he's there, and there's an African-American man there at this dinner with his aunt. And I think the African-American man was given a chair or a plate, and the soldier was not. And the soldier has this dream in January of 1863. So he dreams that he's home with his family, but something's different. A black man is now being given rights that he would not otherwise have in Arkansas in January of 1863. Mm. And I've read through the soldier's correspondence, and he was a very politically astute soldier. He was paying attention to the war. He knew what was going on. And January of 1863 is a really important period in the war because that is when Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. And this soldier writes this letter to his parents about this dream that he had that involved his aunt and a black man. And he says, you know, I don't know what this dream means. If you have any sense, you know, I'd love to hear mm -hmm. it. Clearly, this guy was having anxiety about emancipation and the, the possibility of, of equal rights for African-Americans in the South, or, or at least for freedom for African-American slaves in the South. It was it was manifesting itself in his dreams. He wasn't fully able to make that connection. But I think looking at it in hindsight, you're able to see these are the anxieties this guy was having about the war at that particular moment. Yeah, uh, as I was saying that, you know, for me, one of the most uh, powerful things about the dreams you cite is how almost more than anything I've read about the Civil War, including by people who lived then, that that the dreams, including daydreams of, of soldiers, can give mm -hmm. the most can give the most direct access to the emotional and psychological dynamics of the time. Uh, many of which pivoted around feelings of vulnerability and mortality, as they would at any time period. Um, uh, and again, as I say, the the need for reconnection and affection. And I'm, I'm reminded of what you said at the beginning of the interview about how you originally thought about, could you do a kind of history of the war uh, mm -hmm. through the dreams? And then you decided to kind of clump them uh, in terms of the dreamers. Uh, but, but do you see, and I, I, at least I saw while reading that there's, there's a potential here to, to, to write a new history of the war uh, through the dreams that reveal the sort of emotional interpersonal dynamics at play, maybe even before uh, the war as well. Yeah. You know, one of the, and you alluded to this earlier, one of the things that really jumped out at me about soldiers, bad dreams is that oftentimes their really bad dreams had to do with fears of marital infidelity. And oftentimes yeah. it's related to not getting correspondence from home. So you find a number of, instances where soldiers write to their wives and say, 
I dreamt that I came home, and when I saw you, you ignored me in the street. And and that says something, I think, about the the anxieties these guys were feeling. Yes, we're fighting for our homes, we're fighting for our families, we're fighting for our nation. But what if we're being forgotten? Or what if my partner leaves me for a copperhead who's a sneaking coward back at home? And some of these go well beyond just my wife ignored me. Some of them get into suicide dreams or murder dreams where men dream that they go home and their wives are cheating on them, oftentimes with multiple men. And in some of the dreams, the men try to commit suicide. In other, they usually wake up before they do. In other dreams, they murder the men with whom their wives are cheating. And what's remarkable, though, is that the men felt comfortable enough to write about these terrible dreams that they were having. Mm. And I think they were trying to convey the sense that they had anxieties about their spouses. And I think that doing it through dreams enabled them to sort of soften the blow of this really difficult issue. Hey, I'm worried that you might be cheating on me. Right. I'm having these dreams. Uh, some of the soldiers even will will sort of bookend their dream reports by saying, you need to write more letters to me. There was one soldier from Wisconsin named Miles Butterfield who had this sort of uh, suicidal dream. His wife was cheating with him, cheating on him with a couple men. He goes home. She rejects him. He lays down on a train track in his dream and tries to commit suicide because he's just so heartbroken. And the letter that he wrote to his wife is 12 pages long. And at the beginning of the letter, he says, you're not writing to me enough. And then he tells this really detailed dream. And then at the end of the letter, he says, you need to send me more letters. I mean, clearly, lack of communication from home was having a psychological and a damaging effect on this soldier. Right. Uh, it also shows to me that they may be dreaming about something quite horrible, uh, let alone anxious in all number of ways, yet in dreaming and then in writing about it, they're, they're trying to figure that feeling out, um, you know, metabolize it, uh, make sense of it. Um, so that, so that, it wasn't just all horrible that there was some kind of affirmation of life almost in having sort of the fear that something went wrong back home. Um, right. And and that pe- people are always trying to find the connections in the disconnections that they're, they're confronted with. How, how did this sort of change for you, the view of soldiers experience at war um, in a, in a bigger picture? You know, we think about war as really, really horrible or tough, and it is in so many ways, but but humans are complicated uh, beings, and we're feeling all a range of stuff all the time. And it seems that 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 the dreams themselves, and then the writing about the dreams, really gives an emotional nuance up up and down, pleasure and displeasure to the soldier's life, uh, more nuanced than we've actually seen in a lot of a lot of presumptions uh, in some studies of soldiers at war. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I wanted to try to do in the book was show that the emotional experience of these soldiers was complex. And a lot of the scholarship coming out today just focuses on the negative aspects of the experience of Civil War soldiers. And I, as I was doing the research, I didn't know what I was going to find when I initially started digging into looking for dreams. But as I began to find these patterns where 
soldiers are predominantly having positive dreams. When they have negative dreams, they're often about domestic affairs. That tells us something really important about soldiers. One, that the psychological destruction of soldiers may not be quite as broad as it's often depicted in the scholarship today. Um, and two, it shows us a really deep connection between soldiers in the field and their families at home. A lot of the people writing, or I shouldn't, I should say some of the scholars writing about the Civil War today talk about the deep divides that emerge between soldiers and their families as soldiers aren't able to communicate in the same ways or convey their experiences in an intimate way with people at home who are not experiencing combat. And yet, I think the dream reports of soldiers show that a very intimate connection does persist through uh, their letters and through the reporting of, of really their most intimate moments, their sleep and their anxieties that come out in dreams. That shows something valuable, I think, that's been lacking in a lot of the recent scholarship. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's quite miraculous how the dreams fill in all those missing um pieces of information in terms of, well, what, what other thoughts were soldiers having about home? Um, in addition to the difficulties that they were experiencing at war. And of course it goes back to how we started the conversation, which is that dreams, although the subject of some studies, and, and as you say, during the revolutionary war, uh, have not really been taken up uh, wholeheartedly. And, uh, but they do offer a key piece of information about people's emotional mm -hmm. lives as, as we know from our own lives. And I'm thinking also about the writing of the letters to report the dreams and um, how much uh, the dream itself is a continuation of writing in a form, you know, it's writing in your mind, it's figuring something out that then, then you may put down or translate into words, but that the, the, the fabric of written words is really complex between uniting uh, home home ones and, and those at war. And that um, this, again, this sort of good night, sweet dreams, good night, good night, that we kind of brush off at the end of letters is the very connection piece, as you have, you have said, between the thinking that's going to go on in the dream and the thinking that has just happened in the letter. And that will continue when the, when the soldier wakes up or the next day when they report the dream. And so I, uh, I'm thinking about how we can see dreams as a form of writing as a, almost a continuation of the letters that they are writing. The con let's just say the conversation that soldiers are having with loved ones at home is happening, not just through the letter, but through the dream itself. And so you're expanding yeah. our view, are expanding our view of what, what um, constitutes this conversation that it's, it's beyond the written word. And we need to look at, you know, obviously your primary source of evidence is the written word about the dreams. But from that, we can, we, we, we understand that the thinking of the soldier, the writing of the soldier is going on all the time. Right. That's right. They're processing their experiences even while they sleep. And then as, as you allude, they're trying to translate it into a written word later. And it's interesting how with dreams, I've experienced this. Sometimes in a dream, I'll have an idea of something that um, makes a lot of sense to me in terms of something I'm thinking about in my scholarship or teaching, and I'll wake up and I'll write it down because yeah. 
the dream some somehow my mind came to an idea that was worthwhile even actually julia ward howe had that experience where she had just been um watching a review of soldiers in northern virginia in 1861 and uh confederates approached and so her her uh group of people she was with ended up fleeing back to Washington, D.C. And as they were fleeing to Washington, D.C., they're sitting in a carriage and there's soldiers outside of the carriage and they're singing John Brown's Body. And no one really, I guess, liked the words of the song, John Brown's Body is a Moldering in the Grave. And so that night, someone says to her, you should, you should write better lyrics to that song. And that night she has a dream and we don't know what the content of the dream was, but we do know that she woke up very startled from this dream and grabbed a piece of stationery and wrote down the words to the battle hymn of the Republic. Right. And so in that sense, you know, connecting dreams to literature, she had a, a dream about the words of battle hymn of the Republic and woke up and fortunately wrote them down before they escaped her. And now that's one of the most famous songs in American history. And it's all a result of, her wartime experience and then it coming to her in a dream. Right. And, and also being confronted with what she thought was a kind of um, debased uh, a, a lyrical song about John, John, right. John Brown's body. And so she's hearing the soldiers sing this and wondering, you know, is there a more uplifting uh, message to put to this tune? And then she, the story goes that she falls asleep and she wakes up. And as she's waking up, she remembers, this dream or material from the dream and then immediately sets down these now, now quite famous lyrics, uh, the battle hymn for the battle hymn of the Republic. And I, that's a good, a yeah. good uh, point. Um, a good story on which to just to pivot towards uh, representation of dreams in popular culture um, at the time um, in stories and images. Uh, and they are at first look or at first take quite sentimental Um Mm-hmm. But in relationship with the more um, defamiliarizing dream content that you've that you've present throughout the book, um, they, these popular representations also appear to me, at least, to show how the representation of dreams of unification or clear good and evil were premised on the reality that perfect union was impossible, that that there's always a fear of disunion in one's personal familial life mm. that fuels the need to put out a more perfect version. So it's not that the perfect version is untrue or a lie or, or paper, you know, papering over the truth, but that it holds within itself the fear of disunion. And so, and, and it's another right. way of kind of putting Julia Ward Howe's experience that within the battle, him and the Republic is John Brown's body. Right. So she right. changed the words, but, but, but if, you know, we sing it, can we still feel that uh the rage uh and the glory of uh, that that is that resides within the john brown's body lyrics within the more sort of sentimentalizing yet 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 quite violent in another way uh, lyrics of the battle yeah. hymn of the republic right no i think that's an excellent point and yeah absolutely and so how do you overall then see the place of the represent pipe the representations of dream life um uh as I say, they offer an ideal picture um, and are more explicitly nationalistic, um, but but also seem to to um, uh, shouldn't be brushed aside for that reason. Yes. Oh, 
Okay. So I was just wondering then more about what you think in terms of these popular representations of dreams so that, you know, uh, they, they could easily be brushed aside as, as, as overly nationalistic. Um, but as I say, I think they actually contain the fear of disunion. Um, but what you write about is more along the lines of uh, that they were serving some kind of goal of bringing people together uh, in terms of the prevalence of dream imagery in the popular press. So can you talk a little bit about how you see the place of the representation of dreams in the popular press at the time? Yeah, most of the depictions of dreams during the Civil War were very sentimental. And so they are of soldiers dreaming of going home. And you see this through prints, you see it in newspapers, you see it in song lyrics, you see it in the poetry of the time. And I think that historians have been somewhat dismissive of these images because of their sentimentality and they're seen as um, not realistic in terms of what the soldiers would be experiencing. And what I found as I as I was digging into soldiers' letters is that soldiers often wrote about these poems or these songs or these images, and they would they would write to their wives and say, this is what I this is what I dreamed last night. This this is my experience. They would write to the poets who write these sentimental songs right. or poems and say, you captured my dream perfectly. I actually I found on eBay about a year and a half or two years ago, a copy of the Courier and Ives print of uh, a soldier dreaming of home. And I ended up buying it because on this particular copy, a soldier had inscribed it to his wife. He wanted her to know this is this is uh, my my experience. And I think that you're right. These dreams capture the division, the disunity. The disunity is what causes the dreams to, to actually happen, the fact that they are right. separated from one another. But there's a mass market appeal because people at home and men in the field want something that gives them hope for something better. And being unity in marriage or unity of nation. And uh, I think that part of the reason these things are so prevalent today, you can find them on eBay, you can find them in museums and libraries all over the country, is because they were sold widely to a very eager um, marketplace for these kind of ideas. Um, so you don't use uh, theory of dreams at all or theories of dreams to, to talk about right. the meaning of dreams. And obviously, there's a long history of millennia old uh, in terms of sim symbols of dreams over time and what they mean. Um, uh, but of, co of course, we all have some kind of theory of dreams. And as we've been talking in this conversation, is very much informed by by what we think dreams are doing or not doing. Um and um, I was reminded while reading of what Freud said that that we dream in order to sleep. Um, but then when we get to some kind of discomfort or real of the dream, something that's like unsymbolizable for which we were dreaming in the first place, um, uh, then then we wake up um, in order to in order to keep dreaming. So that dreaming is how right. is how we get through the day even as in their most free ranging forms, dreams can reveal that which we are trying to escape. And, and, and you don't say that in the book, but again, as I was thinking about that, as I was reading, because you make a similar point when you say that, that, that dreams of slaves show how their day-to-day -day reality was almost like living in a dream 
not 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 necessarily mm-hmm. a good dream, but 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 also right. how how dreaming um, functioned in terms of just getting through the day. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about about the place of dreams in African American life in the nineteenth century? Sure. Dreams for African Americans, especially for slaves, I think were a, in some ways, a form of escape or a means of escape from the daily toil and the horrors of slavery. But of course, sometimes their dreams captured the very terrible experiences of slavery. You have young children who dream about being sold away from their parents, from their mothers, or uh, dreaming, if I found instances of slaves who escaped and dreamt of being recaptured. So you see some positive dreams of, of slaves who are escaping from their experiences, and then others who actually may get away, but their dreams take them back to that very dark experience of, of bondage. In, a, in another sense, dreams have an important place in African-American religious culture in the 19th century. And in order to show your conversion, your true conversion to Christianity in many slave communities, you would have to reveal how you had had a religious experience. Often that could be embodied in a dream you had or a vision that you had. And a number of the dreams that I found for slaves came out of uh, the written record of slaves dreams that were reported later to to confirm their uh, religious experience for many white christians by this time dreams have a much less public role they're much more private and so you see a number of of white christians northerners and southerners who really look down their noses on the experience of of african american slaves and they they look at them as as being primitive or superstitious for having these sort of dream practices in their public religious worship. But what was fascinating for me as I was doing this research was for as much as whites look down on black dream practices, there was a very common dream culture that existed among Southern whites and Southern blacks. And Whites have the same kind of ideas about the meaning of dreams or the symbols of dreams and as African-Americans do. And so they they have um, and they even yearn for understanding dreams through the lens of how their slaves view dreams. So there was a, a dream manual that came out in the antebellum period written ostensibly by an African American or an African woman who was imported to the United States named Chloe. And there was a market among white buyers who wanted to be able to understand dreams. Well, where are they going to look for tools for interpretation? They're going to look to an African woman who can tell them what the symbols of their dreams mean. And so it's very interesting juxtaposition or, or disconnect in the way that whites view dreams. On the one hand, they want to look down on black dreamers and their experiences. On the other hand, they think that there's a key to understanding through black understandings of dreams. Right. So it, it makes me think that, that whites recognized that from their own experience, their dreams revealed a lot and about themselves and the world. And, uh, but they, they wouldn't want to see themselves completely aligned in their values with a culture that was otherwise seen as degraded or enslaved um and so 
So they would dismiss the more public uh, ritualistic place of dreams that appeared in African-American culture, even as they themselves in their own private lives recognized uh, the important revelations held uh, within dreams. And, um, and I also, I also wonder that it's not simply because they don't want to be seen as, you know, completely aligned in their value systems with a culture that was denigrated at the time, but also that because dreams really bring to the surface, so to speak, uh, the severe sort of interpersonal dynamics of the time, that the dreams of African-Americans would be quite scary and threatening to white people because uh, they may reveal, um, you know, quote unquote, what's really going on in slavery, that it's not, it's not an, an institution um, of happy home life. Um, and so, I, I I wonder if that's part of the resistance to giving, to hearing or giving credit to these dreams, even though they would turn to African Americans for knowledge about dreams in general. But to giving credit to their specific dreams is a quite dangerous um, prospect. And I also say that because you talk a little bit about, um, I think it's Alexander Stevens' dreams, um, and he was a um, he was the vice president of the Confederacy. And uh, you talk about some of his dreams uh, about his slaves and the relationship he had with them. So can you can you talk a little bit about uh, those dreams and what kind of more complicated emotional dynamics they reveal about the relationship between him and his slaves at the time? So Stevens was, as you said, the Confederate vice president. He was captured at the end of the Civil War in Georgia and imprisoned at Fort Warren in Boston, which is actually still a historic site today and is a pretty interesting place to to visit. And while he was there, he kept a very detailed journal. And throughout the journal, he recorded his dreams. And a a number of his dreams had to do with his brother Linton and um, hoping that his brother would come and rescue him from prison. After all, you're, you're likely to be charged with treason and possibly executed at that point. So he has a lot of anxiety in that regard. But then a number of his dreams also have to do with his relationship with his slaves. And he sees Richmond burning. He sees people being hanged. And uh, so there's a lot of torment in his dreams. But in his dreams about his slaves, you see a very, you see the real paternalistic nature of slavery come out where he really believes or sees himself as the father of his slave, not literal father of his slaves in this case, but um, right. as the caretaker of his slaves. And so in some of the dreams, he tries to coach them in terms of this is what you need to know for freedom. In others of the dreams, he's worried about, you know, if Richmond's burning, where are they? Are they going to be okay? And so it's this very strange um relationship that comes out where on the one hand, obviously Stevens is a a white supremacist. His cornerstone address in 1861 says the whole reason the Confederacy was founded was to protect the institution of slavery and to show that whites are superior to blacks. And so he's a white supremacist as, as much as you can be. And yet he still, his dreams reveal that there was a, a very real tenderness, I think that he at least believed existed between himself and his slaves. Right. Or that he at least recognized the humanity of slaves uh, through that tenderness, even if the tenderness was expressed in a paternalistic way, that 
through the That's dream right. is re- right. So that through the dream is revealed again, a much more complex, uh, emotional relationship, some ambivalence, um, and that it does sit strangely, um, even in contrast against the more public, uh, straightforward announcements about, or, or uh, about the ideal of slavery and the good of slavery. And, um, Again, it, it just points to the fact that, you know, as historians, we must be careful about taking people's uh, word for their word, mm-hmm. <laughs> that what they say in, in public, what's printed, what their quote unquote official stance is, um, is, is, tells you something. Um, but it's also a kind of trick. It's also, it also, it doesn't represent in any kind of clear way. Um, or, or clearly referential way, what this person actually feels about people who are different from him. Right, right. And that, that it's the dream um, that in which, you know, is revealed something much more complex. And, and uh, again, people will, will probably question, you know, well, how, how can you then take dreams at face value? And, and I would mm-hmm. say, well, well, no. And, and, and I don't think you, you do in the sense that another strength of the book was for me, how you let dreams speak for themselves, you know, and that, and this is, I guess, a reason why not, why you wouldn't bring in, you know, theories of dreams is that the dream, the material of the dream itself as reported is already so, so rich and right. so complex and so human that just by reporting it and, you know, organizing it in the way that you do about in terms of clumping examples together to help sort of reveal their similarities, their commonalities, that just reading that um, we, we can make the connections that we want to make. And there's really no more that needs to be said uh, that uh, I'm not saying that there's an answer in these dreams, but that, but that there is a an additional complexity that is clear right. in these dreams that is absent from most other historical documents. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And there there was some pressure on me when when I would have people read the manuscript before it was published to try to incorporate more psychological theory. And I, I really resisted it in part because the theories change over time and I didn't want my book to be bound by one particular theory. And in part because I'm a historian and not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but in also I think the main reason is what you just articulated, that the dreams are so rich that I, I used what I call a common sense approach to dreams. And I, I just try to look at them, determine patterns, and then try to explain what do these patterns show us about the experience of these men and women. Right, that the, that the dream itself is an is an analysis of itself right that right. that it it is it is content and and a comment on the content that's the wonderfulness of dreams is that yeah. is that in the very strange juxtapositions you know well first this happens in a dream then this uh there's knowledge created there's analysis uh made uh just by the report of that juxtaposition so i, I think that 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 feels right to me not to over overload um the book with any kind of uh theory um and and i'm sure there's so much more dream content i mean how much did you leave out i'm sure you found a a many many more that you didn't include yeah i you know i had the idea around 2008 
And then I, I start, I was working on a couple other books at the time. And so I just started a file. And anytime I found a, a mention of a dream in a soldier or civilian's letter, I would just tuck it into this file. And then around 2013, I, I was ready to start writing and, and to keep searching. I found well over 400 dreams and mo- a lot of them, probably close to 400 are in the book itself. Um, I stopped searching when I got to the point of seeing enough patterns that it, I felt confident to be able to make some claims about what I was seeing. Um, it's funny, though. I still have friends who write to me and say, I found this dream in a soldier's letter. Can you use it? And I, I tuck those away because I'm sure I'll be able to to find some use for them in the future. But most of the things that still get sent to me are ones that fit the patterns that I've already uh, shown in the book. Right. And so I, as I was reading it, I was wondering, as I mentioned before, about whether a history could be written of the Civil War, you know, through the dreams that that, that people had at the time. Um, and I, it also made me think, reading the book, that um, did the war itself have to be a uh, have to be a dream to get through yeah. it or to make something of it, you know, with, with how much of the war itself, you know, the actual day-to-day experiences, um, how much are they processed in a dreamlike way in order to get through the day or to make meaning out of it? And so I, I'm just wondering what your final thoughts are about yeah. how this content uh, dreams per se um, open up a whole new way of looking at and maybe even writing about the war. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. So many people at the end of the war say it all seemed like a dream. It just, it just seemed too surreal. And you even find, you alluded to this earlier. I found instances where men were so exhausted that they didn't know whether they were awake or asleep at different points. And they would have to try to figure that out because of the dreamlike haze that they were sometimes in when they were fighting or when they were marching because of the exhaustion that they felt. I think that, I think that there's a lot of room for this sort of study in the civil war. There's one scholar who's working on prophecy during the civil war, trying to figure, I think he's calling it a history of the future, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what did American civilians and politicians and soldiers think would happen and then what ended up happening. And I, I think that as scholars begin, I, I think the, the more creativity we can have in terms of the questions we ask, the sources are out there. And it's just a matter of having the patience and the diligence and the wherewithal to find them. Finding 400 plus dreams was not an easy task. And it took years and it, it took a lot of help from good archivists and, and friends um, who would pass things along when they found them. But I, I had a hunch that it was a doable project, and it's very different from anything else I've done. Most of my scholarship is on political or constitutional history, and so this was a new thing. But I, I wanted to find something that no one had ever done before and a, a way to look at the war that was different and that might help us to think about the war differently. And when I had this idea, I thought it's worth a shot, and um, it certainly was a lot of fun to move into a different sort of field than I normally travel in. And what are you working on now or what's your next project? Yeah, um, I'm writing a biography of a slave trader during the Civil War. And it's a I had started by writing a history of the slave trade during the Civil War. And I probably wrote about 150 pages of it. 
And then I stumbled upon this one person named Appleton Oaksmith. And there's almost nothing written about him. And yet he has a remarkably rich uh, documentary record. I've probably found about 10 or 12,000 pages of materials related to his life. He was a womanizer. He was a, he went to California during the gold rush. He uh, was attacked by 3000 Africans in 1852 when he was on the Congo river. And then during the civil war, he gets arrested for slave trading thrown actually in the same prison as Alexander Stevens at Fort Warren in Massachusetts, um, convicted of slave trading and then escapes from prison. And, um, he just has this really remarkable life that touches on some of the most important moments of the Civil War era. And so I'm, I'm about 300 pages into a biography of him right now. I'm hoping to finish it in um, early to mid-2018. And uh, will your treatment of his life or even the idea of writing a biography change after uh, writing about dreams? You know, it's funny. I, I'm more attuned to dreams now. And so I've read through his mother's correspondence and she writes about some of her dreams and his brother writes about some of his dreams. And they had prophetic dreams at the beginning of the Civil War about the nature of, of how long the war would last. And so um, in the past, I might not have included dreams in a biography. This is the first biography I've written, but now I'm, I'm certainly including some of them because of the insight I think they give into the emotional experiences of this family that really gets ripped apart and, and really destroyed by the war. Well, we'll definitely look out for that. And we'll bring this interview to a close now. Again, I want to thank Jonathan White uh, for joining us. He is the author of the book, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War, and it is published by University of North Carolina Press. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. <laughs>